Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Deanne Stillman is a widely published, critically acclaimed writer. Her books include Mustang, The Saga of the Wild Horse in the American West, a Los Angeles Times Best Book 2008, and winner of the California Book Award Silver Medal for Nonfiction, and 29 Palms, A True Story of Murder, Marines, and the Mojave, a Los Angeles Times Best Book 2001, which the late Hunter Thompson called A Strange and Brilliant Story by an Important American Writer. Desert Reckoning is based on her Rolling Stone article, The Great Mojave Manhunt, a finalist for a Penn Journalism Award. She writes the, the Letter from the West column for Truth Dig and is a member of the core faculty at UC Riverside Palm Desert Low Residency MFA Creative Writing Program. And she lives uh, right here in Los Angeles. We're always happy to have a uh, Deanne here, and just so you know, she is a, um, a person who's also launched every single book that she's had here, right? And she's had tremendous success, except when I can't get this uh, thing working. Hold on one second. It's almost there. Okay. Almost there. Hey, Dan. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, I think it's starting up. Okay, it, it fell asleep. Yes, absolutely. And while I am vamping to do this, we want you to let you know there are um, a few things to know about this particular book. Uh, the uh, Rolling Stone magazine called it uh, 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 the best summer read. I am trying to give you some, some, you know, the best summer read. There we go. Right, exactly, right? The best summer read, okay? Um, and was also chosen by um, uh, Amazon as their editor's pick for July. It's been getting um, rave reviews, and uh, you'll see why. She uh, has this terrific book trailer. We saw it twice. We really did. Hold <laughs> on for one second. Um, and while he's doing that, um, something uh, I'm supposed to mention to you are some of the upcoming events here at Skylight Bookstore. Uh, tomorrow, July 15th, we'll be here for Outspoken, a Vito Russo reader. Um, people who will be here for that, Mark Thompson. Michael Kearns, Jeffrey Schwartz, and the big draw for that tomorrow at 5 o'clock is Bruce Valanche. And if you're not familiar with Bruce Valanche, he's, uh, he's hilarious. He's, um, well, he's hilarious looking, but he's also hilarious. I mean, he's really, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, on all fronts. I mean, hey, you know, it's, you know, as, as if Bette Midler and Whoopi Goldberg says, when they need a joke, they contact Bruce Valanche. Okay, he's, he's really that, that funny, so... 
Um, also on July 16th, uh, Joshua Henkin will be here for his book, The World Without You, out of Pantheon. And then on Tuesday, July 17th, uh, Carolina Vaklaviak will be here on how to get into the twin palm into the twin into the into the twin palms. Has nothing to do with your book. That's twenty nine palms. And then <laughs> and or maybe we can just go on to her um go online to her website because she's got a link to it okay. too. And then on um for those of you who are writers, I would strongly suggest especially if uh if you're a fan of the um the believer which is a really important book that gets uh, or, or a series that uh, that does interviews and articles and fiction. Um, Carolina Vaklaviak uh, is also the deputy deputy editor for the Believer, so you know you should definitely come and check that out. And then on July twentieth at uh, seven thirty, uh, Paula Priamos and Dana Johnson will be here for the Shyster's Daughter and um, elsewhere in California. And then on July 25th at 7.30 p.m., uh, Charles Yu will be here for his short story collection, Sorry, Please Thank You. Um, and Yu's a, a really terrific guy, and he does uh, some really, really uh, great short stories. Um, and uh, an event that we want you to be aware of, particularly if you're an emerging writer, um, is uh, something called the Emerging Voices Fellowship um, out of Penn Center USA West. Uh, it's uh, developed for writers who want to establish their careers. And uh, I think we're... Uh, if you go here, I think. Go uh, on. The books. Yeah, the books? Uh, no, go, sorry. Um, the work thing?
Wow, thank you very much for that. That was great. It's great, you know. I have to thank John Harbour, the filmmaker and producer director who made that Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Deanne Stillman. Thank you again. Thank, thanks, uh, Dan, uh, um, here on sound and audiovisual, and uh, Noel, our host, and Skylight Books, and all y'all for coming today on Bastille Day. I know we have stiff competition. Um, I want to tell you a little bit, uh, first of all, how I came to write my latest book, Desert Reckoning, and then I, I'll. Um, read a few excerpts and talk a bit about them and then open it up for questions. Um, in, uh, on August 2nd, 2003, I was um, in Lancaster, which is in the Antelope Valley. I don't know if all of you know that. The, Los Angeles has another half. LA County has another half, which is the Antelope Valley, and it's just over the San Gabriel Mountains, and it's the Mojave side of LA, and a, a lot of people don't realize that that we have that. <laughs> they just think that, you know, LA stops at the San Gabriel Mountains on the north, but there is this whole uh, frontier side, uh, which includes two cities, Lancaster and Palmdale, and then a number of remote outposts. Um, but okay, I was at the um, home of photographer Mark LaMonica on August 2nd, 2003, and we heard sirens and um, squad car after squad car screeching eastward towards um, a, a little uh, outpost called Yano and um, we kind of wondered what was going on because it was really there were there were like dozens and dozens and dozens of of sirens and the choppers came in it was just it was really it was an unusual event um, so we turned on the TV and, and um, it turned out that there had just been an ambush apparently outside a trailer in uh, Yano and um, a beloved uh, local sheriff named Steven Sorensen had just been gunned down and um, his killer or killers were at large. Nobody knew then what had happened. And um, <coughs> uh, Mark had said to me, hey, you know, <laughs> Maybe you should look into this story. I'm laughing because people always come to me with, with, with stories about crime, and especially if the desert is, is involved, because um, people who know my work know that the desert is, is um, an important element of it, and, and I like stories that are set in the desert, and I'm a longtime wanderer in, of, in the end of the desert myself. Um, that doesn't make sense. Just in the desert. Okay. Um, <laughs> what? Okay. Um, but there have to be, a, the, the, I, the stories have to call me in other ways, too. It can't just be like a crime in the desert. I'm there, you know. I don't do like where's the fire kind of reporting. Um, my books take 10 years, each take, have each taken 10 years. This one took eight. There, there are other elements that draw me and I, veins I like to explore. So I wasn't sure. Um, at first, that I wanted to get into, I just didn't know. I mean, there was the desert. Um, I didn't know enough about it. I was finishing up my book, Mustang, at the time, or in, I guess not even, fin I was somewhere in the middle of it. Um, and then also Mark and I had been, we were working on another book that had to do with the Antelope Valley. Um, 
<coughs> a book of uh, text and photos. And so I just didn't, there were other things going on and I didn't really know if I wanted to get into it. But then as this manhunt unfolded and it turned out that the FBI, the DEA, Edwards Air Force Base, thousands of cops, um, infrared technology developed in the Gulf War was being used in the hunt for um, the, the, it turned out by then, by day three or four, it turned out that this hermit named Donald Cook was the prime suspect in this killing of Deputy Sheriff Steven Sorensen. Um, by that time, there were a number of elements in the story that were appealing to me. Um, I heard Hermit, and that sort of, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I'm there. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about Tolkien. <laughs> okay, so Hermit, um, he apparently, uh, he, his best friends were animals. I, it, be, it, it was becoming clear. Um, he had been living in the desert for a long time. Um, the sheriff was kind of a uh, a real throwback, kind of an Andy of Mayberry character who had volunteered some time prior to this incident for the job of resident deputy in in you know a remote desert outpost. And I started to think, well, who would who wants to go to the desert and guard it alone? And then Sheriff Baca later told me that it became Steven Sorensen's mission to protect God's creation. Um, so there were these elements appearing uh, that were appearing in the story. It turned out also that Deputy Sorensen loved animals and he would rescue um, pit bulls and abused other abused critters when he would like on his call, you know, if he were, were called out to a meth lab, he, you know, he, he had kind of a Noah's Ark at his compound in Lake Los Angeles. So these two guys had a lot in common even though they were two sides of the same coin. They both loved the desert, they loved wild things. One was guarding it and the other was really kind of, um, by then, an outlaw. But had he, Donald Cook, who had killed the sheriff, was um, an ex-felon who had vowed never to go back to jail. Um, he had, like a lot of people in the Mojave, a real healthy <laughs> disdain for the man. and. Um, he, uh, his son, whom he had been estranged from for years, he, they both had tried to reconcile uh, out there in the desert at some point, and that failed. And his son, had, shortly before this incident, had um, died of a heroin, heroin overdose in an, in an abandoned theater in downtown Los Angeles. And that really, that was kind of after that happened. And, Cook had been out there kind of marinating in the sun for years and years and when that happened that uh, you know said sent him over the edge and then having vowed uh, never to go back to jail one day when Steven Sorensen showed up at his door boom that was it so let me um, tell you a little bit little bit about these characters. Um, this is an excerpt from my uh, prologue called A Strange Request. Alone in his small trailer, Donald Charles Cook had been singing a song. It wasn't a pretty song, nor was it a song that the casual passerby would hear on the off chance that he or she was in the vicinity of the remote little abode. 
No, the weird and discordant tune emanating from the trailer, always calling, calling, calling for someone to come and put him out of his misery, was broadcast on a frequency few could monitor, its sound waves fading in and out of the radio dead zones that pockmarked the vast desert expanse. But the singer was persistent and unwavering, and his song encircled the sage and drifted across the nest of the last desert tortoise. It traveled down washes cut by ancient floods and caressed the tough backs of scorpions. And one day it crossed a bahada, and the singer, yearning for his days to end, sang more furiously, sending the dirge into the higher elevations, up a butte studded with Joshua trees and granite slabs, <clears throat> and bobcats and up higher until it was swept away by a Santa Ana wind, that high voltage swirl of hot air that is born in the Mojave and is said to carry messages of evil and other things. And it, sorry, <laughs> it wafted across the high desert scrub over mountains and sea and was heard by sensitive souls in other lands far-flung sisters of the man who sang his own death song, and they called each other from Okinawa and Pensacola and Arizona and knew something was wrong. In another desert community outside of Los Angeles, there was a daughter who also sensed impending doom, and she wrung her hands as she knew the end was near. Animals with their keener hearing responded to the softer notes of the singer's grim melody, for all living things respond to music and would come in from points south, east, north, and west of the trailer to be fed and nourished by the man who loved them but hated cops. So that, that's a little bit about Donald Charles Cook. And I just want to backtrack a second. I think I forgot to mention the, um, uh, how this became a Rolling Stone article. By the end of that first week, as the manhunt it had stretched on for six or seven days, and it was clear that Donald Cook knew the desert very well and, and had been able to outfox this massive high-tech posse, um, I had decided that I wanted to look, look into this story, and I called my editors at Rolling Stone and um, talked to them about it. And I had worked with them before, and they liked the idea and, and made the assignment. So it took two years to write the piece. And I, but I always knew it was going to be a book, because it just it had all these elements that I mentioned earlier. And um, Do you want to put it on the stand so you can have uh, your hand can be uh, OK. I guess, yeah. Okay, thank you, thanks, okay. Um, now, um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Antelope Valley. Um, north of Los Angeles, the studios, the beaches, Rodeo Drive lies a sparsely populated region that comprises fully one half of Los Angeles County. Sprawling acro across 2,200 square miles, this shadow side of Los Angeles is called the Antelope Valley. It's in the high Mojave Desert, surrounded on all sides by mountain ranges, literally walled off from the city. It is a terrain of savage dignity, a vast amphitheater of startling wonders that puts on a show as the megalopolis burrows through the San Gabriel Mountains in its northward march. Packs of coyotes range the sands, their eyes refracting the new four-way stoplight at dusk. Green snakes with triangle heads slither past Trader Joe's. Vast armies of ravens patrol the latest eruption of tracked mansions that, 
until a couple of years ago were selling for nothing down. Now foreclosed and empty, they are once again available for a small down payment as the region waits for the endless boom and bust cycle to head north, as it always does. Just out of curiosity, who here has been to the Antelope Valley? Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Nice to, nice to see. So that's uh, where the story takes place. Um, I want to tell you a bit about Steven Sorensen, also the cop who was killed. Um, he was an ex-surfer from Manhattan Beach. And uh, to this day, his friends are baffled. Like, why would anyone want to leave the beach and head to the desert? But to me, I, I get it. It's wide open space, <laughs> water or not. Um, and he used to be a lifeguard in the Bay Cities, and as one of his friends in the Sheriff's Department told me, um, being a cop isn't that different than being a lifeguard. Law enforcement aside, you're like up in a tower and you're the guy everybody turns to, and you, you know, you're like uh, very necessary, uh, of course, and um, you're completely alone. You know, you can't be touched by, by, um, individuals and, and uh, you're really apart from society in a lot of ways and um, cop, a lot of cops feel that they are, feel that that uh, that's kind of the path they're on and they're right. So here's a little bit about Steve, a little bit more. Most cops have chosen their line of work because they are the kind of person who wants to make a difference. Some perhaps have chosen naively with little understanding of the way it is on the streets, pursuing a dream of wanting to be a police officer or, fi or firefighter when they grow up. Others come right from the streets, a life of petty or sometimes hard crime, in fact, heading for a world of trouble. Someone turns them around and they become a cop because they know how to talk to people who are falling through the cracks, especially kids. Or in the old days, they were pressed into service by frightened citizens who sometimes hired outlaws as sheriffs. As the noted cowboy scribe Frank Waters wrote, wrote with a tin star he stood the chance of also wearing a halo of righteousness without it a noose. Then there are those who instinctively know that someone has, has to enforce the rules of society and they feel hypocritical if they don't walk the walk of the American credo. We are a nation of laws, not men. And yet others join up for the camaraderie, the pension plan, the good salary, or a combination of all of these things. And then some simply fall into the gig because it suits their temperament. They are service-oriented, they feel comfortable in a world of rules, and once inside the club, they know they have come home. <clears throat> as far back as his friends can remember, Steve Sorensen wasn't telling people about wanting to be a policeman when he grew up, but it was clear that he liked to help people. So what happened on the day that he was killed, it was his day off. and. Um, he got a call from a neighbor who had been a neighbor of Donald Cook's, the hermit who had been complaining about a squatter. Now it might sound strange to you that hermits don't like squatters and like what's the difference? But there is a big difference. And um, I get into the hermit kingdom of the Mojave in my book and I talk about sort of this strange class system. You know, every every region has a class system and there there is a difference between hermits and squatters. Um, 
so every like all, even the hermits in, in in this part of the desert were complaining about this one squatter. He had been like befouling the area and leaving refuse everywhere, and and um, everybody wanted him gone. And he had been evicted, presumably two weeks prior to the uh, murder of Steve Sorensen. But people weren't sure, so a neighbor called called Steve to ask him to make sure that the squatter was gone and that's when he came out to Cook's place on August 2nd following up on this trespassing call and um, I will read you a little bit about that. The August morning heated up heading past 100 degrees. It was even too hot for rattlesnakes and to escape the furnace they retreated to pockets of shade under the greasewood or into the sand. Attuned to human and animal sounds, Deputy Sorensen walked the site where he had recently served eviction papers to the squatter, saw no sign of him, and told the bakers. Then he got back in his Ford expedition and started for home. But something changed his mind. To, th to this day, what that was is not known. When he arrived, Mr. X was gone. He drove to Frank's place to tell the family and then headed north toward home. But something, what, some ancient siren call, a strange dirge being broadcast on a frequency only the most attuned could hear, made Sorensen turn left back towards the squatter's site east on Avenue T8 for about 50 yards, and then he paused just past the old tires that marked Cook's driveway. Now, the really strange thing about this, and the, and the reason why I call my book Desert Reckoning, is the fact that a number of years prior to Sorensen going to Cook's on August 2nd, 2003, the parrot had a, another run-in on a remote desert highway when Stephen Sorensen pulled Cook over um, for apparent road rage, although, and I, t I write about this in my book, it's not entirely clear what happened there, but um, after this incident, um, Donald Cook did become enraged and um, tried to get Steve Sorensen fired and, and, and sent letters to uh, everyone from the FBI to uh, then LA County Sheriff Sherman Block. And um, the matter was investigated and then uh, I, I think and Cook was um, sentenced to probation for uh, Reckless driving, I think. Um, but at any rate, they had had this, they had had this strange encounter years before the assault at Cook's trailer. And when when it was all over, Cook's sisters found his journal, and in it he had written that he had described this whole encounter with Steve and, and wrote that he feared for his life. Um, okay, so this is this is what happened after after. Um, Sorensen was gunned down at Cook's trailer. At the report of gunfire, a code three, deputy down, deputy needs assistance, went out across the region. Within minutes, dozens of patrol cars from nearby towns and counties were screaming across Highway 138 towards Cook's, toward Cook's trailer. In Long Beach, a Sikorsky H3 helicopter took off carrying five LA County deputies for its regular run up the mountains to Barley Flats in the San Gabriel Mountains, but diverted to Llano as the repeated code threes were broadcast across the Mojave and up and down the PCH.
Every cop on the West Coast from Tijuana to Port Washington knew that a brother was in trouble, clinging to life, or quite possibly had just been whacked, and many of them grabbed their vehicles and headed for the desert as a chopper's crew of sergeant, two deputy pilots, and a pair of EMS deputy paramedics prepared to debark and fan across Cook's property. Ten minutes later, a SWAT team of three from LASD headquarters in East Los Angeles boarded another chopper and was on its way. Homicide detectives Joe Purcell and Phil Guzman, investigating another murder in the town of El Monte, dropped everything when they got the call and hitched a ride out on an LAPD chopper, as by now LASD helicopters had already deployed to Llano or were busy with other crimes. After all, it was Saturday, the night when someone in LA County always gets killed. One of the really strange things that happened, <coughs> excuse me, Bob, happened uh, in this, in, in this week-long manhunt was that the Los Angeles County SWAT team was staging, excuse, staging, <coughs> staging at a uh, local convent of all places. Um, Out there. Yes. Uh, there's a convent called uh, Mount Carmel in Lake Los Angeles, very near where this crime had happened. And um, uh, several days into the manhunt, the sheriff's department had gotten word that Cook had not fled the country or even the area, but was still in the desert somewhere outfoxing this massive posse. So the, the, this convent was the most convenient staging area um, it was, there was a lot of wide open space around it. There was enough room for helicopters to land. And it sounds really strange. Um, and uh, there, was, there were buildings that they could stay in. So throughout the week, here was the Los Angeles County SWAT team uh, living at the convent. And um, the nuns are taking care of them and praying for them. And, and at one point, they even got a ride in a chopper. So, I mean, it's like this amazing scene where these two cloistered orders, really, cops and nuns, people whom everybody shuns unless there's an emergency, like this what, coming together in this strange moment of communion. Um, and uh, according to the cops and nuns I spoke with, it was a very, you know, really, um, it, I don't want to say all, it, you know, it it was an experience that imprinted them forever. And one of the guys on the SWAT team, uh, Bruce Chase, who was very helpful to me in writing my book, told, remembered going back to the convent at the end of like 12, 15 hour days, running around in 110 degree heat with 30 pounds of gear on, and then taking it off in the convent and laying down on the cold cement there and just going to sleep and this strange moment of you know relief inside the convent after being on this massive manhunt um, okay so that's a little bit about what was going on during the manhunt um, let me just tell you a bit about Donald Cook on the run and um, a little bit about his son and then I'll open it up for questions um, this, uh, this is from a section called Ghost on a Bike. It tells you a little bit about how Donald Cook was able to evade this gigantic posse. 
On the evening of the third day of the manhunt, the sky was clear and the waxing three-quarter moon, eight days away from being full, cast a bright light across the Antelope Valley, illuminating the Joshua trees and the greasewood and the choya in a way that defined them well. If you were sitting on top of the Three Sisters Buttes and had a good eye, you would have spotted a man on a bike. From the way it wobbled, the bike appeared to be rickety and old, or maybe it was just because the man had difficulty pedaling. He was heading east across a dirt road toward the Buttes, then turned north and headed toward a group of dilapidated sheds. Next to the sheds was another house, a well-kept single-story wood frame house with a driveway that was swept clean, a basketball net over the garage door and some kids' toys in the yard. Between the complex of sheds and the main house was a tree, a mesquite tree, noteworthy because few trees grow in this area and this one was large and flourishing. And by the way, this tree figures prominently at the end of my story in a in this gigantic conflagration which um, consumes Donald Cook and the place that he's hiding. Um, there were lights on in the house and inside it was a family, a Hispanic couple and six of their nine kids. The mother was a cleaning lady employed at the thrift shop of the Twin Lakes Community Church, the one where Steve's friend John Wodetsky was the pastor. She knew Steve well. He frequented the thrift shop and purchased household items such as toasters and fans, redistributing them to needy residents of Lake Los Angeles. She was aware of the fact that Steve had been killed earlier that week, although she did not watch television regularly and had not seen all of the ensuing coverage. At 10 that evening, the man on the bike pedaled up towards the sheds and hopped off, laying the bike down or propping it against a wall. She recognized the man. He was carrying an assault rifle. Afraid, she stepped away from the blinds. For the second time that week, Donald Cook walked into his buddy's place and asked for a favor. Man, I'm hungry, he said. And he gave Smith $10 worth of food stamps. Get me some food, would you? He asked and then told his friend to, to put it in an old bus in the sands nearby. Smith agreed and then Cook asked for water. A little while later, he picked up the rifle and left, riding into the night, pedaling hard. We can imagine riding faster, alive with H H2O, faster now, taking off, imagining that he was levitating out of sight and even out of mind, he might have thought, his own mind, his own joke. Fuck off, world, I'll see your manhunt and I'll raise you with this. Now entering the jet stream and flying through the night, vanishing like a raven. Okay, I think I just want to um, end with this. As I mentioned earlier, Donald Cook had been trying to reconcile with his son. Um, and they were living together for a time out in the desert. Uh, his son, Jello Cook, was um, a musician who was part of the punk scene in the 80s and 90s in Riverside, and he was in a number of bands out there, and actually quite a notorious figure, um, pretty well known on, on the uh, music scene there. Um, it was through Rockets that Don tried reaching not just for the past, but for the future, his own son, the movie October Sky tells a true and similar story about a father and son who connect this way, although it is the boy who initiates the journey. In the case of Don and Jello, the trajectory was the reverse, with the father introducing the son to rockets, hoping to show him a way out. 
The act of guidance was witnessed one day when a sister of Dawn's paid him a visit, elated to see her brother and her nephew toiling away on a new projectile, putting the final touches on quite an impressive looking missile, loading it into a launcher that Dawn had fashioned from his cache of desert junk. Okay, hold that pose, she said, raising her camera. And then father and son did so, holding the pose as if they belonged that way next to each other and leaning against the rocket and grinning away. At this moment, they were boys forever, igniting fires, watching things fly, attaching the past to a thing of their own making and sending it into the endless sky of the Antelope Valley. But in a few years, their relationship would crash and burn, and then sometime later, so would Jello. Soon after that, Edwards Air Force Base would join the hunt for Donald Charles Cook. Okay, so I don't want to spoil the rest of my story, but it does conclude in this giant conflagration um, in the desert um, with nuns watching and praying as they had been throughout the week. Um, uh, choppers hovering over the flames, news vans racing to this scene. Um, a cook goes out like Tony Montana in a siege, and the Los Angeles County SWAT team has moved in in, in a tank called the Bear because they haven't been able to uh, get cook throughout the week. And um, through, during this siege, as this compound where Cook is hiding is on fire. He's also on the telephone with Los Angeles County homicide detective Mark Lillefeld, who was a big help to me in writing my book. And um, Lillefeld let me listen to the eight hours of tapes that uh, were made while he was on the phone with Cook during this fire and trying to talk him into surrendering. And uh, I will leave it at that to hear, the, hear Donald Cook's final conversation with a cop, the one man he did not want to speak to at the end, or ever, when it's quite an amazing conversation. I hope you'll read my book, and um, I'll open it up now for questions, and thank you all for coming. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Questions, anybody? Uh -huh. Like that last excerpt, I read an interview how he was like a self-taught rocket scientist and something where he used to like experiment with Edwards Air Force Right. Is there more in the book about that? There is, yeah. Uh, he, you're referring to, just so everyone knows, Donald Cook the Hermit um, was, was a self-taught rocket scientist. Did, I, don't, I can't remember if I said that earlier, but... Um, he would hobnob with all the engineers at Edwards out there, even though he hadn't gone to college and didn't have a degree in engineering by any means, but was very uh, well-read. Um, I, I uh, talk about his reading, his library that was found in his trailer when cops went to search it after he killed Sorensen. And it's, I actually have a piece about this coming out in Truth Dig on Monday about all the books that he read and the books that some of the other people and the books that influence other characters in this story. It's a very important part of the story. But Cook read, Cook was amazingly well read and, and um, it, it, I mean, when I went out to do his trailer after this hat, it was amazing, there was, he had like passages by Gail Sheehy and like copies of Gun Digest, you know, anthologies of Gun Digest and Carlos Castaneda was a big influence of his and at the end he was um, trying to communicate with his departed son and had been reading a book about contacting the dead by Dr. Raymond Moody. He was a very well-read guy, kind of, you know, well-versed in everything from like Buddhism to uh, the Constitution. 
I only wish, I was saying this earlier to, to somebody, I only wish that all of us were as well versed in the Constitution as people in the Mojave are. I mean, like really, this is like a rights fest and I only wish we were all part of it. Um, but, uh, Oh yeah. So he, but he, he read a lot about you know, rocketeering and um, uh, was, you know, uh, even people, engineers out there marveled at his rocket building prowess. And um, it's pretty. I mean, he, he was like this Doctor Doolittle character with an assault rifle. But all, you know, <laughs> quite amazing. So yeah, there's there's more about that, uh, how he used to build the rockets and how he, and it's more about the relationship between him and his son and how they tried to connect through rockets. Uh, so sure, thanks for asking. Um, anyone else? Uh-huh, Kevin. As, as writer, you must have uh, marveled at the serendipity of discovering this previous encounter with Devin Sorensen. Yeah. yeah. How much did that, you think, play into what really happened. Was this just the next chapter of that earlier um Encounter, or was it just a random? Uh, well, those are questions I raise in my book because I don't know. I, I think it, you know it, the reason I call my book Desert Reckoning is I think it figured in in a big way, either on a you know subterranean level or some more overt level. But I, in terms of, of of the overt level, I I'm not so sh you know um, I, and I do get into this more in my book. I'm not nobody ever heard um, Steven Sorensen saying that there's that lawsuit nut down the street. It turns out they were living in each other's backyards. I mean, it's really amazing. But nobody ever heard him say, like, oh, that guy who tried to get me fired is down the street. Um, on the other hand, Donald Cook complained a lot to friends about a cop in the area who had been hassling him, but he was so baked by then that he would, you know, he was like a cop magnet also. I mean, he was like, a <laughs> I mean, I just like knew about him, and he, you know, he just kind of had a demeanor that attracted a, a the, you know, he just, you know, he he looked like a hermit. Um, you know, whatever was really going on with him. I mean, his friends to, to described to me what, that what, that whenever he saw cops, there was clearly like you know serious vibes going down, back and forth. Um, I mean, he hated the man and they hated, you know, these are like, it's like a, an organism. Um, okay, so and at the end there, when Sorensen shows up at his trailer, it's not clear if he knows he's entering the property that belonged to, and when Sorensen approaches the trailer, it's not clear that he knew he was, a, he ran the plate, he goes heads down the driveway and he runs the plates on this old Dodge Dart, and when the dispatcher told him the name of the the car's owner, she garbled Cook's name, which is pronounced, it's spelled K-U-E-C-K, and she gar said quack or something. She garbled it, and it's not clear, and then at that, as soon as she garbled it, gunshots start going off, so, and, and Sorensen's mic may not have been keyed anyway, nobody knows what he heard or didn't hear, and, it, and in the final negotiation between um, Donald Cook and Detective Mark Lillefeld, Cook never says like, well, that's Sorensen. He never mentions Sorensen's name, so it's not clear if he recognized, knew who was showing up on his property that day. It's just unknown. But I would say it's very peculiar that on a hot August day at high noon, they have an earlier encounter that becomes very not borderline violent very quickly, and then years later, it blows up. So that's what I explore in my book. 
that's the sort of vector into this whole story. Um, but I also want to say that um, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was very helpful. Some some members of the department were very helpful to me in in writing my book, and so were some family members of Donald Cooks and friends of the of his son Jello. But Sheriff Bach is in my book. You know the department's under siege these days, but they, there's a, this is another side of law enforcement that you don't hear about much. Um, uh, the SWAT team took me deep inside their operation, and as, as I said, this homicide detective who was very helpful to me while I was writing my Rolling Stone article, cops were very suspicious. They were like, Rolling Stone, what are you, why are you doing this? You know, and they felt that it, it was not gonna be a fair piece, and then they called me afterwards, and they were like, wow, this is fair. And then more started coming forward from then on. So, um, you know, I'm very grateful to, the guys who were in my book on that front, and also all the other friends and family of people involved. Um, uh -huh. Well, we'll still live in the city. I mean, the desert is such an exotic uh, and interesting, mysterious place, uh, especially the end of the Right. And more and more people are moving out there. It's becoming more popular. But what's right. Well, it's the other half of Los Angeles. I feel something I explore in my work, and I'm glad you asked that question, is this connection we have or don't have with what's wild. You know, my my books are about war and peace and our wide open spaces, and um, what happens when with our when the American dream. You know, our, this idea that it's a free country and I can do what I want, which is kind of fueled by our wide open spaces. What happens when that, when individual pathologies and personalities sync up with that, and where does that lead? And uh, the reason the desert's a main character in my work is because I feel, um, the, you know, I I feel we need to connect uh, with our wild. What's sacred? And especially here in, La in L.A. County, we've got, it's, it's all around us. And um, the reason a lot of people are in the desert and more are moving there is to get back to this source. And also it's very affordable, but really I think there's something deeper in that. It is, there is this idea of that we need to get back to our source and you know what connects us back to ourselves. And however that shakes out for you, could be the mountains or, you know. An island. For me, it's a desert, and also for a lot of the people who live there. So here is this interesting collision of two men who both love the desert, um, one of whom was there to protect it, and the other who just wanted to be left alone. Dozens. A lot of them are listed in the back of my book. I hope, uh, hopefully, by all of them, I maybe overlooked somebody, but. Um, it takes me, that's one of the reasons it takes me a long time to write my books and it's not, I don't just, they're not really interviews, I like to have conversations with people and they, just in, like in life, it evolves over time. The converse, my relationships with, you know, people feel more comfortable in opening up after a while and then the conversations go in different directions and one thing leads to ten others and that goes from there. And I mean, one amazing thing is here is that I found out a connect. This all connects back to Mustang. My previous there's a wild horse 
connect. It's not only just books running through it, there are wild horses running through it, and you'll see why in my book, but all these things ultimately connect. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I recount the history of Yano in my book. Yano, where this uh, shootout, where Donald Cook lived, is a strange encla enclave of, of, um, of uh, hermits and bikers and uh, um, pilots who work at Edwards. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful remote area, part of the Antelope Valley. Um, the community began. Uh, as a commune during the 1920s and 30s, and it was founded by um, Job Harriman, a labor organizer who ran for mayor of Los Angeles. And then, due to a number of circumstances, the community fell apart, and um, uh, there, the, its old crumbling ruins are there now on Highway 138, and locals refer to it as a socialist Stonehenge, which is, it is funny, but it doesn't really, the, what came out of the commune has had a big impact. And one, I get into this in my book, I, I, I talk about how this happened, what, but tract ho the idea of tract housing actually came out of the commune at Yano, not Levittown. It actually was born at Yano. And here were these, here in the Antelope Valleys, there are these enclaves of tract housing, you know, homes, McMansions, marching towards, at the time of this incident in 2003, marching towards Donald Cook's place, living in the wounds at Yano, marching towards his place and putting the squeeze play on all the people out there who just want to be left alone. And then here's Deputy Sorensen pressed into service to clean up the desert. So that's sort of a big, broad backstory of all of this. Anything else? One more question, then I'll sign books if you'd like. <laughs> OK, thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.